Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be in chapter 23 of Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be on pages 234 to 247. The title of the chapter is Prophets and Apostles Were Married. The reader portion of the program is about 28 minutes long. After the reader portion of the program, I'll open up the phone lines for questions and comments. Um, I've got to pre-record this today, so um, if you call in during the commentary portion of the program, I will bring you into the screening room and talk to you off air. If you want to go on the air at the end of the commentary portion of the program, we'll open up the phone lines for people to come on the air. So let's get into this right now. This is Prophets and Apostles Were Married. Prophets and Apostles Were Married, Chapter 23 of Polygamy in the Bible. Pages 234 to 247 program for Wednesday, February the 23rd, 2022 at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. When our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to organize his church, he chose a special set of men to be the cornerstone of his gospel. These men were his closest companions in his ministry and his special witnesses. They were apostles, and he selected twelve of them. Why twelve? Why not five or ten? He chose twelve to be representative of the twelve tribes of Israel who came from the twelve sons of polygamist Jacob. Here we have an interesting and graphic example of the honor that Christ made toward the principle of polygamy and the lineage of their descendants. Not only did he honor them, but he sought to gather them together as Christians. The mission of the gospel of Christ was to seek out the lost sheep of the twelve tribes of Israel and gather them together with the gospel. This mission was particularly directed to the Twelve Apostles. The writings of the New Testament consist of two Gospels by two Apostles and two by seventies. And the rest of it was written by Peter, Paul, John and a little by James and Jude. There certainly must have been much more written by Christ's disciples, probably containing information just as important. But because of the absence of that material, we must glean what we can from the existing writings. What we have is enough to assure us that the apostles and disciples all believed in marriage, and in no in 
plural marriage. Both modern and ancient historians generally agree that all of the apostles were married. Clement of Alexandria, born about 150, occupied the most profound and interesting position in the history of Christianity. He was a philosopher, historian, and Christian whose works are most valuable in formulating much of the early Christian church. A century and a half later another historian, Eusebius, quoted many portions of Clement's works. Eusebius was a founder of a theological school and one of the most learned men of his age. Said he, now Clement, whose words we have just quoted, after what has already been mentioned, with respect to those who reject marriage gives a list of the apostles who are known to have been married, saying, or will they disapprove even the apostles? For Peter and Philip begot children, and Philip, too, gave his daughters to husbands, and Paul does not hesitate in an epistle to address his wife, whom he did not take about with him that he might facilitate his ministry. Since we have mentioned these matters, there is no harm in my presenting another narrative of the same author, which he wrote down in Book 7 of the Stromata, relating it in the following way, they say, indeed, that the blessed Peter, when he beheld his wife being led away to death, rejoiced because of her calling and return home, and called out to her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, O thou, remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and the perfect disposition of those dearest to them. Let these matters germane to the subject at hand suffice on my part for the moment at this point. However, celibacy soon became a more holy doctrine in the church than marriage. Unmarried priests, monks, cardinals, nuns and even the Pope lived in violation of the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. All it was according to the prophecy of Paul that some would depart from the faith and would be forbidding to marry. But forbidding to marry, either monogamous or polygamous, is spiritual wickedness, and is surely the basis for much of the immorality and evil of today. God clearly pointed out in the beginning of time that it is not good for man to be alone. But in a short time the philosophies of men and misinterpretations of the scriptures filled the cells of monasteries, convents, caves and deserts with celibate hermits and spinsters. These souls suffered needlessly without love, affection or the kindness of family members. All this misery and mischief was spawned and pawned by the prince of darkness. How many pilgrimages, mortifications, fasts, denials and misery some of these souls have suffered we will never know. Most of them, perhaps because of some act of sin or burning conscience, established to themselves a mortification of the flesh for its purification. How sad it is that men will grasp one sentence here, another sentence there, and conclude with no sense at all. All this misery and suffering could have been avoided if they had realized that the New Testament is like a mirror merely reflecting the laws of the Old Testament. The Christians and the heathens were not the only ones to give themselves over to some strange penance or peculiar abstinence. In the Talmud we read of a sect of Pharisees called Moles. 
They were so fearful of looking upon a woman and committing the sin of lust or adultery that they went around with their eyes closed or blindfolded. Luther contended that Cyprian introduced celibacy as a doctrine to the church around 250 and Street, Ambrose believed it was a doctrine for spiritual persons. However, many Catholic scholars properly understood the scriptures and admitted that marriage was honorable and that plural marriage was also sanctioned by the Lord. The most celebrated Catholic writers, such as Durandus, a street portion in the 14th century, Alphonsus Tostatus, a bishop of the Bailor in the 15th century, and especially Cardinal Cajetan, who debated with Luther in the 16th century, and Cardinal Bellarmine and Ash all admit that a plurality of wives is lawful, according to the divine law. They even went so far as to admit that it would be lawful even to priests, if the Pope would accept it. Street, Augustine, 354-430, the prolific writer of Catholic literature, also wrote, because, for the sake of multiplying posterity, no law forbade many wives. Christian church officers were required to be married and the fathers of children, according to Paul, who wrote, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? He further exhorts the bishops to be husbands and having his children, that deacons should be husbands with wives. Then going on to chapter 5, I will therefore that the younger women marry, their children, guide the house. These are the same exhortations of the law in the Old Testament. Saul was a married man, for that was a requirement of membership in the Sanhedrin. This Saul, or Paul, sat on that Sanhedrin council when they voted for the death of Stephen. See Acts 758-60, Acts 8-1-3. He was so valiant in cleaning up Christians in Jerusalem, where he labored, that he went to the high priest of that council and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, so that he could drag Christians there back to Jerusalem for punishment. See Acts 9-1-2. Peter, too, was a married man and Jesus had occasion to visit his wife's mother. The Catholics claim that Peter was their first pope, but they certainly can't blame him for their celibate doctrine. In fact, Peter may well have been a polygamist, for he had two homes in Dash, one in Bethsaida and one in Capernaum. In the beginning we read that a man should leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Genesis Jesus repeated this law in his teachings. What is this doctrine of one flesh repeated by Jesus? It means that the woman who, by her own free agency, chooses a man for her husband, must surrender herself wholly to him and dash so much so that she loses her name by assuming his. She is no longer under the jurisdiction and responsibility of her parents. By the sacred principle of marriage, she surrenders herself to be his helpmate, his property, his responsibility and even his flesh. When she becomes his wife, 
she becomes flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and dash or rib of his rib, as the inflection of the story infers. The woman by nature is meant to be a part of man. The marriage ordinance was instituted to recognize man and woman in that binding relationship, in which they must be united as one flesh, or they cannot be made perfect. Another part of this union of marriage is the union of creation by which they both unite their flesh to reproduce their own flesh, or children. This union of the flesh produces a body as perfect as that of its parents and as a body which is one, yet apart of both parents. Hence, the husband and wife become one flesh, and their children born from that union also become one of their flesh. Furthermore, if a man has several wives, they, too, are all one flesh with him. The whole marriage and family union is therefore considered sacred and should be as indissolvable as a man losing a rib. At this point, it is interesting to note the instructions Paul gave to Timothy and Titus concerning the ordination of men as bishops and deacons. A bishop there must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, and good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of rather unruly. Three bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God. There are several meanings attached to these passages of scripture. One is that Paul intended to prohibit all single or unmarried men from being in the offices of bishop or deacon. He saw the necessity of the men in those offices being married to at least one wife. By being married, they would have the experience of being able to teach and rule blamelessly over a wife and children and their own house as well. If a man could not rule well over his own house, how could he take care of others in the church of God? If this view is correct, then Paul was not really limiting the amount of wives that men could have but only insisting that they be married. Furthermore, if he was intending that a bishop and a deacon be limited to one wife, then he was saying it would be permissible for polygamists to occupy any other office in the church, since he did not restrict them. A second meaning that some give to these scriptures is that these offices were not to be conferred upon those who had more than one wife. This interpretation seems logical, it is very certain that many members of the church had more than one wife. If the members of the church had only one wife, then Paul was talking nonsense by telling them to limit their wives to one. If there were no polygamies, then why the restriction? The expression, the bishop must be the husband of one wife, is a very strong indication that there were many in the church who were the husbands of more than one wife. Suppose that in 1980 a minister in Colorado wrote to his fellow minister in Idaho and said, Let those who are ordained to the office of bishop and deacon have no slaves or only one slave. Since there is no slavery in Idaho, his letter wouldn't make sense. Where slavery does not exist, there is no need for instructions against it.
This is a most interesting observation in dash that mention is made in an abstract way about certain officers with one wife, but absolutely no indication against polygamists. Neither was there any mention of those who were in the church that were polygamists and dash that they would have to repent, forsake wives, or cease advocating or living polygamy. Why not say that being the husband of one wife was necessary to be a Christian, rather than limiting it to a bishop or deacon? Or does this infer that the practice of polygamy among apostles, elders, seventies, and priests, is permissible? Paul's recommendations and qualifications to Timothy do not in any way mean that polygamy is a sin. If it does mean that, was he saying that polygamists were not sinning bad enough to keep them from holding other offices in the church, but that the office of bishop and deacon were too holy for polygamists? Foolish thinking. It is very evident that these two positions in the church required the office holder to be as free from family cares as possible, since so much time and self-sacrifice was required to do merit to the church. Large families, like the polygamists had, would require more time and effort than some church positions would allow. It is upon this principle that Paul inferred that there were advantages for those with no wife at all. He wrote, He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Paul also indicated that it was his own advantage, since he was a widower and now able to devote his full time to the ministry. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. The apostle was admitting that he had not offended any law of the Jews, yet their law always permitted polygamy. This is evidence that Paul had not changed the law in regard to polygamy. Yet, Paul had been preaching the gospel for about 29 years when he made that statement. But some argue against polygamy by quoting Paul when he wrote, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. This is no more a limitation on the number of wives a man may have them to say, let every man have his own servant, and every servant his own master. Would this be conclusive proof that a master could not have more than one servant, because the servant could not have more than one master? Also, Jesus said to move thy neighbors. Does this mean love only one neighbor? This argumentative word catching is beneath the principle of debate. If a man has two wives, each may be properly styled or called his wife. The learned Selden has proved in his Huxapai break that a polygamy was allowed, not only among the Hebrews, but in various portions of the world, and even in Asia at the time of Christ and his apostles. Yet, in the writings of the missionaries to the people of Asia, where polygamy flourished, there is no mention that polygamy was a sin. In Paul's epistle to churches in Greece, where polygamy was accepted, plural marriage was not mentioned. 
John Stern rebukes to the churches in Asia for their many crimes did not even mention the many polygamists there. Condemnation of every kind of sexual sin or licentiousness was often repeated through the letters to the churches among the Gentiles, but in no instance did they warn them against entering or living polygamy. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he listed a long and painful catalogue of immoralities. In these chapters of scripture is mentioned every possible sin, but there is no mention of polygamy. He clearly mentioned the sin of a woman with several husbands, but gave no indication of sin in a man having several wives. This letter of Paul certainly would have been a place to mention polygamy as a sin, if it were one. Therefore, we must conclude that Paul's enumerations of sins corresponded with those of the Old Testament law. During the time of the Apostles' ministry, there were probably thousands of polygamists who chose to accept Christ. These were faithful people who had obeyed the laws of Moses and the Old Testament patriarchs and wanted to become Christians. If the apostles were as foolish and as prejudiced as our modern ministers, they would be forced to tell the polygamists that they must give their wives a bill of divorcement and put them away. But how could they do that since the only reason that Christ gave for divorcement was for fornication and adultery? If the gospel of Christ had forbidden these polygamists from entering the church, then Christ and his apostles would have mentioned some law, some rule and dash and would have proclaimed it many times. Nowhere in the ministry of the apostles did they write anything forbidding polygamists from entering the church, or from living plural marriage as Christians. Consider the case of a man marrying the widow of his deceased brother. The apostles never wrote a word to change this law. Would the apostles tell them they could not be Christians because they were obeying one of God's laws? If the apostles changed that law, we have no record of it in the New Testament. Peter said that wives should be in subjection to your own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well. For many centuries, women considered it a great honor to become the daughters of Abraham. But now they have become so righteous, that it would be a disgrace to be the daughter of such a polygamist. Peter explained how to avoid this distinction in Dash simply by ceasing to do well, for that was the only way they could avoid being called the daughters of Abraham. If they reject the gospel, then they will have the distinction of not having the name of polygamist Abraham attached to them, nor will they need to worry about associating with him in heaven. To embrace the gospel that Peter advocated would be to embrace the principles that Abraham lived. Only on this premise can anyone be adopted into the family of Abraham, upon whom God extended every conceivable blessing. Peter had made many sacrifices for the gospel and so had most of the other disciples. At the time, these sacrifices may have appeared to be unredeemable. However, Peter wrote, Lo, we have left all, and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife or children, 
or lands for my sake and the gospels that he shall receive a hundredfold now in his time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life to receive now in this time as much as a hundredfold of houses wives brothers and sisters was intended to be a great promise and reward it was at least attempting to present the possibility of such a reward being gained even in this life but how could a man get a hundred fathers and mothers it would be possible only if he should get a hundred wives they would naturally be his parents by marriage the brothers and sisters would follow along with the wives to become a new part of that man's family as for a hundredfold houses they would be necessary to shelter the hundred wives and their children lieutenant is only on the principle of plural marriage that such a promise by the savior could possibly be fulfilled after the church of christ began to suffer from apostasy within and persecution from without and dash while the apostles were still alive the doctrines and principles of christ began to fail the mystery of iniquity doth already work wrote paul and it wasn't long before some of the pagan philosophies began to appear as doctrine in the church in the 17th canon of the catholic church it was stated that those who had both a wife and concubine would no longer be permitted to keep both in the 70th canon of their church all bishops priests and deacons would no longer be allowed to have wives at all but even though priests monks and cardinals and the pope himself were forbidden to marry a fragment of plural marriage continued all the nuns were permitted to be married to christ they were completely dedicated to jesus as the brides of christ and each wore a wedding ring to prove it thus christ is the husband of thousands of wives to become the most celebrated polygamist of all chapter 24 contest at law okay so that was the our uh, the reader portion of the program we'll get into the commentary portion of the program at this time once again the guest call-in number to speak with the host in the call screening room is 917-889-8827. You can also just call in to listen. Uh, however, I do suggest you use the streaming service for that and leave the guest call in line for people with questions or comments. Um, I will take your phone calls in the screening room for any questions or comments and then if you choose to wait until the end of the um, until the end of the uh, commentary portion of the program uh, I will bring you on at that point and uh, you can be live on the air with your questions or comments thank you for listening
Prophets and Apostles were married. Chapter 23 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 234 to 247. But now if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. 1 Corinthians chapter 28 First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28. When our Savior Jesus Christ came to organize his church, he chose a special set of men to be the cornerstone of his gospel. These men were his closest companions in his ministry and his special witnesses. They were apostles, and he selected 12 of them. Why? Uh, why 12? Why not five or ten? He chose twelve to represent, to be representative of the twelve tribes of Israel, who came from the son, or from the twelve sons of polygamous Jacob. Here we have an interesting and graphic example of the honor that Christ made towards the principle of polygamy, and the lineage of their descendants. Not only did he honor them but he sought to gather them together as Christians. The mission of the gospel of Christ was to seek out the lost sheep of the twelve tribes of Israel and gather them together with the gospel. This mission was particularly directed to the twelve apostles, see Matthew chapter 10 verse 63, and James made this especially clear when he wrote in his epistle, in James 1 verse 1 to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad page 235 the writings of the New Testament consist of two Gospels and by two Apostles and two and two by 70s and the rest of it was written by Peter Paul John and a little by James and Jude there certainly must have been much more written by Christ's disciples probably containing information just as important. But because of the absence of that material, we must glean what we can from the existing writings. What we have is enough to assure us that the apostles and disciples all believed in marriage and in no instance condemned plural marriage. Both modern and ancient historians, actually, I gotta say this, okay, so on the Zoom call last night, uh, somebody was claiming that the inspired translation of the Bible was never completed because we don't have uh, the record of John the Baptist and other books that Joseph Smith never translated and gave to us, and I just want to say that's a really bad argument. Um, considering that there's like five or six places where um, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith said that they completed their translation, and it wasn't it wasn't that they were adding to the books; it was that they were just completing the translation of what they had in the King James Bible at the time. So. And I'm just thinking about this now because it's fresh. I mean, it was like last night when the Zoom call was on and somebody was trying to make that ridiculous argument 
Um, but number two, like he's talking about like all these records that we don't have from the other disciples. And it's true that we don't have the full record of John the Baptist. And we don't have other lost writings. Uh, well, they don't have other lost writings. And I don't have all of them either, but I do have some. So, um, and Joseph Smith, it would have taken him a long time to actually sit down and write them all because there is a lot of lost records. Um, but to say that the translation, the inspired translation of the Bible was never completed when Joseph Smith said that it was, and Sidney Rigdon, who was helping with that whole thing, he also said that it was, um, and to try to make it into something different because we don't have some of the lost books of the Bible and the inspired translation is sad that, that he's trying to make that argument um, they finished the inspired translation. The LDS Church wants to tell you they didn't, but they did. And you can find, uh, go and look on in, um, in, in Google for inspired translation, uh, Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and you're going to find that there's a PDF of the whole Bible, and they finished it. So, I don't know, I just needed to bring that up because there are ulterior motives of people who want to try to claim that he didn't finish it when we know that he did but there's more to come so I don't know I don't know why people are like that but whatever anyway so continuing on with the reading both modern and ancient historians generally, generally agree that all of the apostles were married. Clement of Alexandria, Egypt, born about 150 AD, occupied the most profound and interesting position in the history of Christianity. He was a philosopher, a historian, and a Christian whose works are most valuable in formulating much of the early Christian church. A century and a half later, another uh, historian, Eusebius, quoted many portions of Clement's works. Eusebius was the founder of, of a theological school and one of the most learned men of his age. Said he, quote, Now Clement, whose words we have just quoted, after what has already been mentioned, with respect to those who reject marriage, gives a list of the apostles who were known to have been married. And that is found in Stramata, volume 3, verse, uh, or volume 3, page 52. That's the quote that, that he's quoting from Clement. So Eusebius is quoting where he's reading this from Clement. Anyway, saying, Or will they disapprove even of the apostles? For Peter and Philip begot children, and Philip too gave his daughters to husband. And Paul does not hesitate in the epistle to address his wife, and he's talking about uh, Philemon uh, chapter 4 verse 3 and 1 Corinthians 9 verses 5 and 13. Whom he did not talk, whom he did not take about with him that he might facilitate his ministry, on page 236. 
Since we have mentioned these matters, there is no harm in presenting another narrative of the same author, which he wrote about in Book 7 of Stramata, relating it in the following way, quote, They say indeed that the blessed Peter, when he beheld his wife being led away to death, rejoiced because of her calling and returned home and called out for her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name. O thou remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and the perfect disposition of those dearest to them. And quotes Ramada, Book 7, pages 63 and 64. Let these matters germinate. To the subject at hand suffice on my part for the the moment of this point ecclesiastical history by eusebius book 3 chapter 30. however celibacy soon became a more holy doctrine in the church than marriage and it's because the roman pagans hijacked the early christian church And the influence of pagan Rome is felt in every, every Christian church in the world, including the restored Church of Jesus Christ upon the earth, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and all of her break-offs. Unmarried priests, monks, cardinals, nuns, and even even the Pope lived in violation of the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. All this was according to the prophecy of Paul that some would depart from the faith and would be forbidding to marry. See 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 3. But forbidding to marry either monogamous or polygamous is spiritual wickedness and is surely the basis of much of the immorality and evil of today. God clearly pointed out in the beginning of time that it is not good for man to be alone. But in a short time, the philosophies of men and the misinterpretation of scripture filled the cells of the monasteries, covens, caves, and deserts with the celibate hermits and spinsters. Page 237. These souls suffered needlessly without love, affection, or kindness of family members. This, all this misery and mischief are spawned and pawned by the Prince of Darkness. How many pilgrimages, mortifications, fasts, denials, and ministries, some of misery, some of these souls have suffered, we will never know. Most of them, perhaps because of some act of sin or burning conscience, established for themselves a mortification on the flesh for its purification. And this, this comes from the Latin um, Vulgate, which just completely destroyed so much of the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, it is disgusting what they did with the Latin Vulgate. Um, which was translated from the Septuagint, which is the Greek, and then the Greek New Testament as well, the Brat Hadashah. Anyway, but um, 
like for instance, according to the Latin, except, uh, the Latin Vulgate, the word repent, they, they changed the word from a word that meant to turn back to God and live, to turn to God, that's what repentance means. And they changed it to a word that meant to punish yourself, to afflict yourself, uh, a word that meant great sorrow. And people took that and they did these mortification of the flesh, which was destroying the flesh. They would flog themselves, they would torture themselves. All of this crap for the, for the, um, you know, to, to receive forgiveness and have great sorrow and anguish. And that's how Satan gets you. He wants you to be just condemning yourself and down on yourself to the point where you don't forgive yourself. And if you can't forgive yourself, how can God forgive you? And I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's so insidious. How when the Catholics took the pure scripture and they translated it into Latin, how vulgar that translation is, is compared to what the truth of scripture was. And it's all because Rome hijacked, I'm sorry, pagan Rome hijacked early Christianity. And they took the Hebrew Messiah and made him into a pagan Roman pagan deity or something. And they really perverted so much of the truth. Continuing on, how sad it is that men will grasp one sentence here and another sentence there and conclude with no sentence at all all this misery and suffering could have been avoided if they had realized that the New Testament is like a mirror, merely reflecting the laws of the Old Testament. But, you know, when, when, Catholic, when the pagan Catholics um, hijacked early Christianity, they, they are the ones that nailed the Torah to the cross. Jesus taught everything that he taught can be found in the Old Testament. The Tanakh. The Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im. And he said that he did not come to do away with one jot nor tittle till all things be fulfilled. And I'm looking around me now and I am not looking at a sea of fire and glass. All things have not been fulfilled. He fulfilled the law in that he lived it perfectly. And if you understand Hebrew understanding of things, that's what he was saying. If a rabbi says you are fulfilling Torah, that means you are keeping Torah perfectly. That's what that means. Not that it was done away with. Now, there were some things in the Old Testament that are not needed anymore. And then there are some things 
like for instance King Josiah and what he did when when they found the temple scroll in the temple the high priest well a worker um, gave it to found it I guess they were cleaning out the temple or something I don't know anyway it was hidden away in a cavity in the rock in the temple and they found this the book of the law of God and the high priest gave it to Josiah who was the king at the time and they convened a council and they added many vain and foolish things into the Torah which are not part of God's law which was given from God to Moses so the 613 laws they're not right and when Jeremiah and Lehi and others of the school of the council of the prophets saw that they had the law of the Lord you know they saw what was being done they ranted and raved and railed against against these wicked men the the council of these high priests and and whatnot in the temple and king josiah that was perverting the law of god so but jo, jo, um, jesus christ he knew what god's laws were in everything that he taught you can find in the old testament that's my point Anyway, continuing on, the Christian and the heathens heathens were not only ones the only ones to give themselves over to some strange penance or particular abstinence. In the Talmud, we read of the sect of Pharisees called Moles. So the Talmud, when once again, is a book of I think it's 72 or 78 volumes that are the size of dictionaries or encyclopedias. And um, Amazon is actually selling them for about twenty-seven or twenty-eight hundred dollars. I mean, that was the cheapest I could find to to get the, all of the Talmud. But they're uh, they're the record of the rabbis. So in the Talmud, we read of a sect of Pharisees called Moles, and they were so fearful of looking upon a woman and committing the sin of lust or adultery that they went around with their eyes closed or blindfolded. Now, the Pharisees did get married. So they had their wife, but I guess these guys, and I've never really studied about the moles, <laughs> but knowing that the Pharisees were married men, um, and that they did not want to commit the sin of lust or adultery. They would blind themselves, but they would go home to their wives or their wife. Anyway, Luther, that's Martin Luther, who lived in the 14 and 1500s, contended that Cyprian introduced celibacy as a doctrine of the church around 250 A.D., and that St. Ambrose believed it was a doctrine for, for spiritual persons. However, many Catholic scholars properly understood the scriptures and admitted that marriage was honorable and that the plural, that plural marriage was also sanctioned by the Lord. The most celibate Catholic writers, such as Durandus and St. Portion in the 14th century, Alphonsius Tostastius, a bishop of Avioli, Av, wow, hold on. Okay, I had to practice a little bit trying to say this. So, Alphonsus Tostolus, 
a bishop of Avila in the 15th century, and especially Cardinal Kajtan, who debated with Luther in the 16th century, and Cardinal Bellarmine, Bellarmine, I guess, all admitted that the plurality of wives is lawful according to the divine law. So we're on page 238 if you're following along. They even went so far as to admit that it would be lawful even to priests if the Pope would accept it. St. Augustine in 354 to 430 AD, the prolific writer of the Catholic literature also wrote, because for the sakes of multiplying posterity, no law forbade many wives. And that's found in the City of God, volume 16, page 38. Christian church officers were required to be married and the fathers of children, according to Paul, who wrote, quote, For if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He further exhorts the bishops to be husbands and having his children, that deacons should be husbands with wives, and that's in verse 11 which is what I was bringing up yesterday, like, why are they ordaining 12-year-old deacons who are not married if, according to Scripture, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, that, uh, and that's in verse 11, I think, um, that a deacon should be a husband with wives. And so should a bishop. Then going on in chapter 5, quote, I will therefore that the younger marry, the younger women marry, bear children, and guide the house. And that's in five, chapter 5, verse 14. These are the same exhortations of the law in the Old Testament. Shaul, or Saul, was a married man, for that was a requirement of the membership of the Sanhedrin. We're talking about Paul, Shaul. This Paul, I'll just say Paul, sat on the Sanhedrin council when they voted for the death of Stephen. See Acts chapter 7, 58 through 60. See also Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3. He was so valiant in cleaning up the Christians in Jerusalem where he labored that he went off to the high priest of that council and desired of him letters to Damascus, that's Syria, to the synagogue so that he could drag Christians there back to Jerusalem for punishment. See Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. That's because the Christians were going into the synagogues and they were worshiping God with the Jews on the true Sabbath. And then after sundown on Saturday night they would meet together on the Lord's Day not Sunday morning and they would they would meet together and and share their Christian faith now this history wasn't completely lost but that's how the early Christians did it they kept the Torah they kept the Sabbath they met in the synagogues with the Jews and they met together in the homes 
after sundown on the Lord's Day, around the time when Jesus was resurrected, which was sundown on Saturday, not sun up on Sunday morning. Anyway, page 239. Peter, too, was a married man, and Jesus had occasion to visit his wife's mother. His wife's mother. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. The Catholic, Catholics claim that Peter was their first pope, but they certainly can't blame him for their celibate doctrine. In fact, Hold on. My son is making all kinds of noises. So last night there was a blizzard and I got one run done and I was headed to Castledale. Do you want this? Okay. He wants to drink of the soda. Anyway, I was headed to Castledale and by the time I got over to Wellington, oh my gosh. It was ridiculous. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it up this wash plant, the hill, what we call wash plant. But I made it up the hill, and I got a call from the lead driver, and he said, do not go to Castledale. It is whiteout conditions down there. You won't make it. Just dump your coal at the, the coal terminal or the rail yard and go to the yard. They're shutting down the loading operation, and everybody shut off because it was just ridiculous bad. So anyway, I got back to the yard, and we waited for um, everybody to get back in. All the drivers, we all, you know, talked and visited with one each other, one another in the driver's lounge at work. Uh-uh, Arius, bring it to me. Bring it to me, please. Arius. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. My wife is definitely going to have to read today because there is no way in the world I'm going to finish this. It's just not going to happen. Um, I'm only at 37%. And my son wants to watch Mickey Mouse, and he's telling me all about it. I'll be right back. Anyway, um, they also had a snow day in Carbon County where my wife and my two younger kids go to school. So all of them stayed home today, but the two older ones, they go to school in Emory County, and they did not have a snow day. I don't know why, because we got the same amount of snow all up and down the Castle Valley, but whatever. Anyway, so um, this is kind of what it's like to do the radio shows in the summertime when all of the kids are home. Sorry, I'm a family man. I don't know what to tell you, and I work full time, and... I don't know. I got a farm. I got a house I'm trying to fix up. Trying to get these shows in is not always easy. Anyway, continuing on with the reading. In fact, many believe may well have uh, believe that. In fact, Peter may well have been a polygamist, for he had two homes, one in Bethsaida and the other in Capernaum. See John chapter one verse forty-four and also Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 29. In the beginning, we read that a man should leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be of one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus repeated this law in his teaching. See Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And like I said before, 
Everything that Jesus taught comes out of the Tanakh, which is the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im, which is the Old Testament. What is this doctrine of one flesh repeated by Jesus? It means that a man, that a woman, who by her own free agency chooses a man for her husband and must surrender herself wholly to him, so much so that she loses her name by assuming his. She is no longer under the jurisdiction and responsibility of her parents, but by sacred principle of marriage, she, she surrenders herself to be his helpmeet, I don't like this, but his property and his responsibility, and even his flesh. So I would say that the sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise is what makes them one flesh, which is part of the marriage covenant between the man and the woman. And I don't consider my wife my property, but I'm going to take care of her like she is my most prized possession. Anyway, his property, his responsibility, and even his flesh. When she becomes his wife, she becomes flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and rib of his rib as the inflection of the story infers. A woman by nature is meant to be part of man. The marriage ordinance was instituted to recognize men and women in that binding relationship in which they must be united as one flesh or they cannot be made perfect. Okay, so when Peter, uh, when Jesus was talking to the disciples before his resurrection, he says, whom do they say that I am? And then they, they all, you know, they're all coming back off their missionary journeys and and they all say, well, some say you're this guy, and some say you're that guy, because they believed in reincarnation. That's some of the evidence for it, which is a perversion, actually, which the true doctrine is multiple mortal probations, which Joseph Smith talked about in his lecture at the Grove. But, but then he asked Peter, whom do you say that I am? Well, I think he asked them all, but Peter's the one that said it. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. My kids are trying to escape outside so they can go sledding. But Mom's not home right now because she had to go to the store to get me some medicine because I'm actually a little bit sick today. But I'll be fine. Anyway. He said, you know, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to me, uh, to thee, but my Father which is in heaven, which is showing a principle that you get the correct interpretation of Scripture by revelation from God the Father as he sends the Holy Spirit to confirm the truth to you. And Jesus said, and upon this rock, the rock of revelation, will I build my church. It's not on the rock of Peter or any man, because cursed are all they who trust in the flesh. It is the rock of revelation that Jesus is speaking of here. But then Jesus said something very interesting. He said that, that Peter would have the ability to bind and to seal, to loose, um, and basically giving him keys of the priesthood. That he was the man on the earth at that time who would be able to seal people together in monogamous and polygamous relationships. And also the law of adoption, was, which was restored by Joseph Smith, 
which Wilfred Woodruff did away with in the 1890s. But Peter was the man who held the keys of, of the sealing power at that time, which bound husbands and wives together and bound children to parents and bound families to the key holder who was Peter at the time. And Peter was sealed to, jo or to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is sealed to the Father and the Father is sealed up into the heavens and to all they who are sealed to him in the heavens. But Peter was the one man on the earth after the death of, Joseph, or of Jesus Christ and when Peter gave the keys to Joseph Smith he gave him the authority to, to bind and to seal, but then when Joseph Smith received his calling and election, he was actually sealed to J Jesus Christ, who was sealed to the Father and to the Son, and that others were sealed to him using these keys that he was given to seal them up to, to heaven, turning the hearts of the children on earth to the fathers in heaven and the hearts of the fathers and mothers in heaven to the hearts of the children on the earth by the sealing power. Anyway, continuing on. Another part of this union of marriage is the union of creation by which they both unite their flesh to reproduce their own flesh or children. And by the way, I was half a man until I was married. And I, I in, in having these children, who I love more than life itself. I just... I don't see how you can be complete without, without a wife and without children. And unfortunately, my wife can't have any more children because of what happened when our baby Eliza died. Or uh, not Eliza. Our baby Emma died. Um, but we have five kids, so we'll have to be happy with five. Anyway, and they range from two years old to 16 years old, and the 13-year-old who thinks that she's 36 just walked in the house, and she's going to hide, and she's not responding because she knows I'm recording. Anyway. This union of, of the flesh produces a body as perfect as that of its parents. A body which is one, yet a part of both parents. Hence, the husband and wife become one flesh, and their children born from that union also become one of their flesh. Furthermore, if a man has several wives, they too are all one flesh with him, because they're all filled to the man. And... I've talked about that before, I'm not going to talk about it again, but the whole marriage and family union is therefore considered sacred and should be as indissolvable as a man losing his rib. And the 16-year-old is home. We just found out yesterday that the 16-year-old is a mutant. He's telling me to shh. So they did, uh, they did, um, x-rays on him they looked at his spine and I'm sure he'll talk about it when he gets a chance but um, they looked at his spine and he has an extra vertebrae 
Kim. What? Which one is it? L what? Okay, well, instead of having five lumbar vertebrae like you're supposed to, um, there is a small percentage of population who does have a sixth lumbar spine, and he does. It was kind of interesting to see. He's a mutant! I thought, I was like, this looks really strange. And then the ex-tech was like, well, don't quote me on it, but yes, and the reason why is, and then he was showing me, he was counting it. So, it was interesting. However, my son is really tall anyways. He's, what are you, 6'1 right now? He's a mutant. He's 6'1 and he's 16 years old, so he's just a big boy. Yep. And he's 1,250 pounds. I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you pause it so I can Yeah, hold on. So, my wife used to be an x-ray tech, and she decided to not be an x-ray tech anymore because... She was tired of being in the dark all the time, day and night. She would be there all day long, in the dark, in the dark room, all day long. <laughs> and then she would, like in the wintertime, she would like get off and it would be dark outside. And she said, no, no. So she went back to school and got a bachelor's degree in early childhood education. And she is now a teacher. So props to my wife but she understood what she was looking at with the x-ray tech because she used to be an x-ray tech. And my son is a mutant. A six foot one, 300 and something pound behemoth of a 16-year-old man-child. So, and he's really smart and he's ridiculous. And his ACT score uh, for his practice test was 35 or 36. It was one point from perfect. And that was his practice test. So hopefully his ACTs will be perfect, which will get him into MIT so he can be a, a biological engineer for medical equipment, which is what he has wanted to be for a couple of years now. So we'll see. Anyway, back to the reading. At this point, it is interesting to know the instructions of Paul gave to Timothy and Titus concerning the ordination of men as bishops and deacons. Quote, A bishop must that then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. I would say that the translation should have been a husband of at least one wife. Village, uh, vigilant, sober, and good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, etc., etc., and it also says, let the, de the deacons be the husband of one wife, or at least one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Oh my goodness, they forgot to take the S off of the, the houses. Um, anyway, that's in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. Why would a deacon have more than one house? I mean, I know you can translate it a different way if you want, um, but there is perversion in the translations because it went through pagan Rome who they were monogamous, unlike the uh, Hebrew Israelites, which were not monogamous. Anyway, if any be blameless and the husband of one wife having faithful children not ex accused of riot or unruly, 
For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So I don't agree with this translation either because, like, Adam couldn't have been a bishop because he had an unruly son by the name of Cain. You know, Adam and, and Eve were perfect in their generation. And they taught their children to the best of their ability, and Cain still rebelled. And that had nothing to do with Adam or Eve. It had absolutely nothing to do with Adam or Eve. But according to this scripture, Adam and Eve wouldn't have been able to be a bishop. But but Samuel, I think it was, no, Eli, the high priest Eli, like he was still high priest, you know, the one who helped raise Samuel, the prophet even though he had sons who rebelled on the steps of the temple. And I think they were killed because of it. I guess he couldn't have been a bishop either, even though he was a prophet. I don't know. There's other examples I could go on. Um, and he was a high priest as well. So, And in order to to be a true Christian, you actually have to be a prophet. You have to get revelation for yourself. If you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you. That is to receive revelation from the Father with confirmation of the Spirit to bring you to the true doctrine of Christ. Continuing on. There are several meanings attached to these passages of scriptures. One is that Paul intended to prohibit all single or or unmarried men from being in the office of bishop or deacon. He saw the necessity of the men in those offices being married to at least one wife. By being married, they would have the experience of being able to teach and to rule blamelessly over a wife and children and their own houses houses well. If a man could not rule well over his own house, how could he take care of others in the house of God or the church of God? We're on page 241. If this view is correct, then Paul was not really limiting the amount of wives that men could have, but only insisting that they be married. Furthermore, if he was intending that a bishop and a deacon be limited to one wife, then he was saying it would be permissible. Uh, Let me see that. Intending that a bishop and deacon be limited to one wife, then he was saying it would be permissible for polygamists to occupy any other office in the church since he did not restrict them. A second meaning to some give to these scriptures is that these offices were not to be conferred upon those who had more than one wife. This interpretation seems logical, it is very certain that many members of the church had more than one wife. If the members of the bish of the church had only one wife, then Paul was talking nonsense to them by limiting them to one wife. If there were no polygamists, then why the restriction? Why why even bring it up? The expression "the bishop must be the husband of one wife" is a very strong indication that there were many in the church who were the husbands of more than one wife, which would be completely acceptable in the Torah. Suppose that in 1980, a minister in Colorado wrote to his fellow ministers in Idaho and said, let those who are ordained to the office of bishop and deacon have no slaves or only one slave. 
since there is no slavery in Idaho in 1980, his letter wouldn't make any sense. Where slavery does not exist, there is no need for instructions against it. This is a most interesting observation that mention is made in an ab- abstract way about a certain office with one wife but absolutely no indication against polygamists. Neither was there any mention of those who were in the church that were polygamists, that they would have to repent and forsake their wives and cease advocating or living polygamy. We're on page 242 at 58%. Why not say that being the husband of one wife was necessary to be a Christian rather than limiting it to a bishop or a deacon? Or does this infer that the practice of polygamy among apostles, elders, seventies, and priests is permissible? Paul's recommendation and qualifications to Timothy do not in any way mean that polygamy is a sin, and if it does not, or if it does mean that, was he saying that polygamists were not sinning bad enough to, be, to keep them from holding other offices in the church, but that the office of bishop and deacon were too holy for polygamists? This is foolish thinking. It is very evident that these two positions in the church required the office holder to be as free from family cares as possible since so much time and self-sacrifice was required to do to do merit to the church, which is partly why um, I don't want to be a polygamist, because I have so much on my table right now doing all that God has asked me to do. I just, I, it, no, I can't. <laughs> I mean, I would if God wanted me to, and if we, my wife and I received revelation, we're both open to it, but we're not looking for it. So, um, it is my firm belief that the selling of one man to one husband completes the bond that is needed for for the exaltation of men and women. But because there are more um, women who are uh, who qualify for the higher blessings, who are elect, that God allows plural celestial marriage so that these elect women can be sold to men who are fewer in number. And in 2009, in the LDS Church, for every 100 men, there was 127 females. Which, if you go up to the 16 million mark, we're looking at... I don't know what the percentage is. I don't know how to do the math on that. But um, you're looking at millions more women in the LDS Church than there are men just on the statistics alone in 2009. So these women, if they want to be married, they have to go and find Gentile husbands, and many of them will not do that, and they stay unmarried because they cannot find a man who is elect to take her to the temple, which is a horrible, sad state of affairs. And for all of you women out there who rant and rave against polygamy because you don't like it, you are so damn selfish. You're so damn selfish. But these women cannot find husbands and you will not share yours. That is selfish beyond selfish. Like, yeah, it's not easy. Exaltation isn't easy. 
It wasn't meant to be easy. But you will be judged based on your selfishness. And this goes for men, too. Anyway, and the whole church at large, which is out of order according to section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where Jesus Christ said, I will send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order, implying it would become out of order, which it has. Continuing on, large families like the polygamists had, uh, like the polygamists had, would require more time and effort than some church positions would allow. It is upon this principle that Paul inferred that there were advantages for those with no wife at all. He wrote, He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world and how he may please his wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 and 33. Paul also indicated that this was his own advantage since he was a widower and now able to devote his full time to the ministry. So we're on page 243 at 65%, and it is 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, my time, when I'm doing this recording. I have to be to work by 5, so I need to start getting ready for work. So my wife did say that she can read today, and um, so she's going to take over at this point. So, Kim, if you're listening, we're on page 243 at 65%, and um, it starts when Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all? And that's Acts chapter 25, verse 8. So we'll be on page 243. Once again, I am taking phone calls in the screening room off air during this portion of the program for anyone who wants to call in off the air and ask a question or comment. If you want to speak during the live part of the show, you have to call in before. 4, 8 p.m., because that's when the live stream ends. If you're on the line and we go into overdrive, um, you'll still be on the line and you'll be able to come on the show live and ask your question or make your comment, and we can talk about whatever uh, whatever you want, as long as it has to do with theology. So anyway, um, we'll get to that point at the end of Kim's reading, but here's Kim or Emmett depends on what's going on at the time. So thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. God bless. And here we go. Okay, so on page 243, when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. That's Acts chapter 25, verse 8. The apostle was admitting that he had not offended any law of the Jews, yet their law always permitted polygamy. This is evidence that Paul had not changed the law in regard to polygamy, yet Paul had been preaching the gospel for about 29 years when he had made that statement. But some argue against polygamy by quoting Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, 
quote, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband, end quote. Again, that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. This is no more a limitation on the number of wives a man may have than to say, let every man have his own servant and every servant his own master. Would this be conclusive proof that a master could not have more than one servant because the servant could not have more than one master? Also, Jesus said to move thy neighbors. Does this mean love only one neighbor? This argument or this argumentative word catching is beneath the principle of debate. If a man has two wives, each may be properly styled or called his wife. Page 244. The learned Selden has proved in his Uxer, or Uxer, Hebraica, that polygamy was allowed not only among the Hebrews, but in various portions of the world and even in Asia at the time of Christ and his apostles. Yet in the writings of the missionaries to the people of Asia, where polygamy flourished, there is no mention that polygamy was a sin. In Paul's epistles to the church, or to the churches in Greece, where polygamy was accepted, plural marriage was not mentioned. John Stern's, or John's stern rebukes to the churches in Asia for their many crimes did not even mention the many polygamists there. Condemnation of every kind of sexual sin or or licentiousness was often repeated through the letters to the churches among the Gentiles, but in no instance did they warn them against entering or living polygamy. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he listed a long and painful catalog of immoralities. In these chapters of scripture is mentioned every possible sin, but there is no mention of polygamy. He clearly mentioned the sin of a woman with several husbands, but gave no indication of a sin in a man having several wives. This letter of Paul's certainly would have been the place to mention polygamy as a sin, if it were one. Therefore, we must conclude that Paul's enumerations of sins corresponded with those of the Old Testament law. During the time of the apostles' ministry, There were probably thousands of polygamists who chose to accept Christ. These were faithful people who had obeyed the laws of Moses and the Old Testament patriarchs and wanted to become Christians. If the apostles were as foolish and prejudiced as our modern ministers, they would be forced to tell the polygamists that they must give their wives the bill of divorcement and put them away. But how could they do that since the only reason that Christ gave for divorcement was fornication and adultery? If, gospel, if the gospel of Christ had forbidden these polygamists from entering the church, then Christ and his apostles would have mentioned some law, some rule, and would have proclaimed it many times. Nowhere in the ministry of the apostles did they write anything forbidding polygamists from entering the church or from living plural marriage as Christians. Consider the case of a man marrying the widow of his deceased brother. The apostles never wrote a word to, be, to change this law. Would the apostles tell them that they could not be Christians because they were obeying because they were obeying one of God's laws? If the apostles changed that law, we have no record of it in the New Testament. Peter said that wives should be in subjection to your own husbands. 
even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well. First Peter chapter three verse one through one and verse six. For many centuries, women considered it a great honor to become the daughters of Abraham, but now they have become so righteous that it would be a disgrace to be the daughter of such a polygamist. Peter explained how to avoid this distinction simply by ceasing to do well, for that was the only way they could avoid being called the daughters of Abraham. If they reject the gospel, then they will have the distinction of not having the name of polygamist Abraham attached to them, nor will they need to worry about associating with him in heaven. To embrace the gospel that Peter advocated would be to embrace the principles that Abraham lived. Only on this premise can anyone be adopted into the family of Abraham upon whom God extended every conceivable blessing. Um, we're on page 246. Um, I think you had something to say. I just was going to say, yeah. it seems like in, in these specific cases, though, it seems like they're kind of grasping at straws for, for both conclusions, like for or yeah. against polygamy. And so to me, it's kind of like, um, is this really an argument like, like the way that they're arguing it? Does it really matter for every man's exaltation? Because I feel like, um, it, okay, it's kind of like if um, somebody, you know, has a sin, a person that we know has a sin, it's not for me to judge their sin, but for me to love the person. And if they do have a sin then that's between him and God. And do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But and it just feels like reason, they're grasping at straws with this. Well, they're grasping at straws, yeah. But um, what I was going to say is that, you know, the LDS church today uh, in these countries, I've talked to people in Africa and in the Middle East who desire to join the LDS church, but they can't because they will not divorce their plural wives, you know, but the LDS yeah. church will not allow them to have salvation because they have to get baptized by one in authority, but they won't even allow it unless the person, uh, you know, sends their plural wives away with their plural kids, you know, the kids from these marriages, you know, so they're trying to destroy families in countries where it is legal for plural marriage to exist. But the LDS Church is so damn Babylonian, and they have Section 132, but, you know, all that doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about that now. You know, and this is the iniquity of the things. Uh, I'm on wash plant, so if you have anything to say. Okay. Uh, no, uh, Amber Lee's bleeding, and so we were trying to fix that. Is it, gu- Sorry. Is it gushing? <laughs> no but it is a laceration. <laughs> then tell her that she needs to be a man. <laughs> <laughs> no, Suck Olivia, stop what Buttercup. she's doing, and Olivia is helping her now. Oh, okay. Thanks, buddy. Anyway, it, I'm almost to the top of wash plant. Okay. Um, um, I can continue way, I reading. People, I want people to know that um, we do have the guest call in line is open. At 917 And there is a chat room available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Uh, I actually figured out while I was sitting there waiting in line to get loaded how to, like, make the font bigger. 
So I can actually see more than just somebody talking in the chat room. I can actually see what they're saying just by glancing at it because the, the font is so big. But, um, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, yeah, I think they are grasping at straws to a point. Because, you know, Ogden is trying to make a bunch of stuff. But, okay, here's the other thing I was thinking of. Tell them to stop talking okay. in the background. I'm sorry. They're trying to okay. tell me about what happened oh, with Amberly. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Amberly is accident prone today because earlier she was flooding on our, our hill on our property. Um, this was she more of an face. Emmett problem. What's this was more of an problem? Emmett problem. Um, I think Emmett oh. was trying to discipline her and Eliza for being in my room. Okay, well, he is not the not adult, to do that. so why is he right. doing that? I do not even know because I'm down here reading. Yeah. And I don't know. Isn't it I interesting? Think he's we have all of these, these kids think that they can do whatever they want, and you tell them over and over, no, you're not allowed to do that. And it just goes in one ear and out the other. And honestly, I don't know how to make them listen because we've told them over and over, you're not allowed to discipline. So, anyway. All right. They try to so, take our position um, if we don't do it. Yeah, they, they want to make decisions for us on what should happen. And it's like, no, you're the kid. You need to stop. Anyway, back to the reading. Um, or back to the the commentary. Um, mm-hmm. So the the early saints didn't forbid the Jews who were polygamous from being Christians, and they didn't forbid the pagans that con- con- uh, converted to Israelite Hebrew Christianity to, uh, you know, they didn't tell them they couldn't be polygamous. It wasn't a big deal. It's in the Torah. And there's many examples in the Torah, which we've gone over ad nauseum in the last month reading this, this uh, stuff over the last, what, 20, 22 chapters? You know, we're on 23 now. but So, I mean, that's 20 chapters is four, let's see, yeah, four chapters a week. That's a month's worth of reading that we've gone over, almost a month and a week's worth of reading. So, you know, we've been in this for a little while. But um, they didn't forbid them from being uh, polygamists. And for these idiots, I'm sorry, if you're listening and you believe that Brigham Young is the one that started polygamy, you're a freaking idiot, okay? Because in in, uh, Nauvoo Expositor, which was published in June of 1844, right before the death of of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith, they published... The um, the novel expositor, which got Joseph really mad because <laughs> they're trying to keep some cer- certain things under wraps and they you know whatever. But in that, in page two, column four, there's a section called affidavits, and in the affidavit section, it says that William Law and Jane Law, his wife, and others swore, wrote, and swore. Um, an affidavit, which was some kind of legal thing, and there was another person that said, and I so-and-so, 
like do hereby testify that this was uh, what they said and yada, yada, yada. But they said Hiram, and it was either March or April of 1844, read to them both a revelation which they quoted uh, to the best of their ability from memory, which sounded very much like Section 132. Now, William Law, when he saw what Brigham had published after they got out to Utah, he said, that is the same revelation, but there's more to it. You know, so the revelation that William Law said that he, or that Hiram Smith read to him and to Jane Law was only a couple of pages long. And what Brigham published in section 132 was eight or nine pages long, or maybe it was seven. Or eight. The, the point is there was a lot more to that revelation that Brigham got a hold of it than what was originally given uh, to Joseph Smith, which Hiram Smith, the brother of Joseph Smith, read to the laws, which got them so bent out of shape because they hated polygamy. And they did not want... Uh, you know, they thought that Joseph was a fallen prophet over polygamy. And they published it in the Nauvoo Expositor about two or three weeks before Joseph and Hiram were murdered. Maybe it was two weeks, I don't know. But it was June of 1844, the same month. Now, for people who say, well, Brigham Young was the wicked evil man that, that brought that revelation, and it wasn't from Joseph Smith. How do you explain William and Jane Law? I mean, I, I can let loose on this program, but I bite my tongue almost off every time I hear people yapping about, you know, their opinions. They don't get revelation. And some of these people are like, I know that Joseph never lived polygamy. Well, it may be the case that he was only sealed to them and he did not live the same polygamy that Brigham lived, but he was sealed to multiple men and women, which part of that is the law of adoption, but there's other things to that as well, which they do not understand. And they can say they got revelation all they want. And if you listen to them, you can be led by them and not by God or the Spirit. Anyway, I'm going to mute myself because I am actually at the spur, and I am going to pull on this grizz and get all of my rocks off. So, good deal. You ready to read? Yeah, um, I was just waiting for you to be all done. <laughs> okay, um, done ranting. Okay. okay, so you're at the for right now. Yes, and I got to jump out and dump my coal. Okay. And all right, I'll just keep reading then. All the fun stuff. Okay. All right, <laughs> okay, I'll you do know that we're almost done with this, though, this chapter, right? Yeah. Oh, I guess. Okay. It's just so that um, you know that. I won't have a whole lot well, else to say. I'll try to stretch it. To get out and do this. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I, I can hear you. Out. I'll mute. Okay. I'll mute myself. All right. Well, Bye. I'll just keep talking. It'll be great. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Um, Peter had made many sacrifices for the gospel, and so had most of the other disciples. At the time, these sacrifices may have appeared to be unredeemable. However, 
Peter wrote in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, quote, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. End quote from Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. So that is super interesting. I don't know what they're going to say next, but um, the only thing that I was just thinking of when um, in conjunction with plural marriage, it doesn't say wives. So, I mean, it does at first. There's no man that has left his house. Can you guys not talk in the background, please? Because I'm on the radio show. So, yeah. I'll pick him up and walk out that way. Thanks. Okay. Um, it says there's no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters. Sisters is plural or father or mother or wife. Also all singular or children. Children is plural or lands plural for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. And it says, so talking about a hundredfold of houses, brethren and sisters and mothers, and children and lands with persecutions, but not wives. And in the world to come, eternal life. Interesting. That's what I was going to say about that. Okay, let me continue reading. To receive now in this time, as much as a hundredfold of houses, wives, brethren, and sisters, it doesn't say wives, brothers and sisters, was intended to be a great promise and reward. He was at least attempting to present the possibility of such a reward being gained even in this life. But how could a man get a hundred fathers and mothers that would be my question how could you get a hundred mothers because it says mothers it doesn't say fathers so i don't know why they're saying fathers i think they're adding to what it says um to make it meet their own prerogative but whatever okay but it says how can a man get a hundred fathers and mothers it would be possible only if he should get a hundred wives they would naturally be his parents by marriage the brothers and sisters would follow along with the wives to become a new part of that man's family. But it didn't say wives, did it? Did it? We're assuming a lot here. Didn't say fathers either. As for a hundred wives and their children, it is only the principle of plural marriage that such a promise by the Savior could possibly be fulfilled, which I feel like that statement right there is putting God in a box. Like they don't know how this could or could not be fulfilled um, by God, because he is infinite. Um, anyways, continuing on, on page 247. After the Church of Christ began to suffer from apostasy within the persecution, within and persecution from without, while the apostles were still alive, the doctrines and principles of Christ began to fall. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. This is from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 wrote Paul, and it wasn't long before some of the pagan philosophies began to appear as doctrine in the church. In the 17th canon of the Catholic Church, it was stated that those who had both a wife and concubine would no longer be permitted to keep both. In the 70th canon of their church, all bishops, priests, and deacons would no longer be allowed to have wives at all. But even though priests, monks, and cardinals 
and the Pope himself were forbidden to marry, a fragment of plural marriage continued. All the nuns were permitted to be married to Christ. They were completely dedicated to Jesus as the brides of Christ, and each wore a wedding ring to prove it. Thus, Christ is the husband of thousands of wives to become the most celebrated polygamist of all. Now we're on page 248, chapter 24. Uh, Our next chapter is Contest at Law. And that will be read tomorrow? Yes. Not sure. I'll cover that tomorrow. Okay, so... um, I don't know if you heard all that I said, but I feel like that was another grasping at straws thing. You know, it, it might be, but even if it doesn't say wives and, and fathers. It does say mothers. How in the world do you yeah. get a hundred mothers unless you have a hundred wives and the, they're your mother-in-law? That's what he's trying to say. Well, that's what he's trying to say. And, but you have a Spanish mother <laughs> that you say is your mom. I mean, we adopt them through other means, just like the law of adoption. She's Puerto we Rican. adopt Puerto Rican. Sorry, she my bad. Considers me her. Son, because she, yeah. before I met you, wanted me to marry her daughter. Her daughter. <laughs> well, and, the thing uh, is, the thing is, though, is that there are many different ways under which you would have mothers. Yeah, well, you're like a mother to those kids that you teach every day. Yeah, even though you're I not mean, literally their mother. Of, but I do mother them. Yes, but it's talking about adults here, and Mm -hmm. when those kids grow up, they will consider you their kindergarten teacher, not their mother, you know, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, too, about the whole hundreds of of mothers being the mother-in-laws, well, well, kings cannot multiply wives, but it actually doesn't say that commoners can't have multitudes of wives. So I don't know. I've used that argument in the past where kings, you know, it does say that you can't multiply wives. But I don't know. I I noticed that Gideon and um, others had many wives and God never condemned them for it. And we went over all of that stuff, you know, on past radio programs. And... Joseph Smith was filled to a ton of wives, but he never consummated the marriage. As far as we can tell, um, the uh, the DNA of the women who proclaimed to be the plural wives of Joseph Smith and proclaimed that their children were from Joseph Smith, uh, well, that's been all debunked because they've gone to their ancestors and they have not found Joseph's DNA among those people. So, I don't know. I, that's big controversy. And all I know is that, um, you know, all of this is evidence uh, for the legitimacy of plural marriage. Um, and I can present all of that, but I know that God showed me how the spirits are created and how... They were both feminine and masculine before they, when they were intelligence. And when they separated, 
that there was um, something that happened where they were two halves of the same spirit. You, and you do have soulmates, but because of the, um, because of, you know, people having free agency, uh, there are many more elect women who have chosen to follow God's laws uh, and are qualified to to receive the higher blessings where they are filled to a man and, and that it is important. And if everything was perfect, one man and one woman would be all that there needed to be. But when you have an excess of elect women, God does not expect them to go chasing off after Gentile husbands who cannot take them to the temple. And because there are many, and even the statistics show it, in the LDS church alone, there are literally millions of more women than men in the LDS church. That's their statistics. Now, I don't know how to do the numbers. Maybe Kim does, because you're smarter than me in math and all of that fun stuff, because you had more <laughs> schooling than I've had. I People, my wife's gone to college, she got a degree, she's gotten all kinds of schooling. You know, I, um, I was taken out of school by my aunt and uncle who had possession of me when I was uh, in 10th grade, and a month before 10th grade ended, I was forced to get a job, and then a month after that, they abandoned me, and I ended up being homeless. So um, I got a degree in advanced diesel mechanics through the United Auto Workers program that I was in, and I got my GED with honors, and I've taken some college courses, but, um, you know, I, my education comes from self-study, and I never got into math. In fact, I never even got, I never even finished pre-algebra because I qualified to get into pre-algebra in sixth grade. But every year I would move like three times, and every time I would move to another school, I couldn't, they would put me back in regular math because there wasn't enough room or I wasn't in the same spot or whatever. And that happened for four years from sixth grade to tenth grade. So, Kim. According to yeah. LDS statistics in 2009, at that time there were 127 women for every 100 men. Do you know how to make that into a percentage? Um, how many percentage of women there was to men? Yeah. Like, yeah, hold on. I'm on I grab out my calculator. Can't do it in my head. Tell me again the numbers. 127 women for every 100 men. And what I'm looking for is there are 16 million members in the church. So mm-hmm. based on those statistics, I would like to try to get how many understanding members? of how Sorry. many more. There's 16 million members in the church today. Of course, I don't believe those numbers, but that's the numbers that they give. So uh, the reason why Kim's doing that, the reason I don't believe those numbers is because if you look at their numbers versus how many wards and branches there are, there have to be like 540 people per ward and per branch, and they don't give you 
the statistics on how many wards and branches there are, so you can't come to a, a more precise measurement. But I don't believe that the average number of wards and branches has 540 people per ward and per branch. I've never seen more than 200 people at church, and I think if it gets up to, you know, a certain number, they have to split it. And there are probably more branches in the church than there are wards. You know, so their numbers don't make sense at all because you can't have more than 100 people in a branch or it's not a branch anymore, it's a ward. And you cannot have an average number of 540 people per unit, whether it's a branch or ward, without them splitting. It's just it doesn't make any sense. They're dishonest. They want you to think there's more people in the church, but the numbers are probably closer to about four or five million active members of the LDS church. And that is partly because well, like they have these uh, controversies, you know, uh, a controversy like the, the the missionaries down in Brazil would like get people to come play soccer at church or basketball or whatever, and they'd say, hey, if you want to play on our team, you have to get baptized by us. And then they would just baptize all these kids that had no idea what the heck they were doing. You know, it was just a oh, I have to get wet, and then I can be on the team? Oh, okay. You know, that happened a lot back in the 70s and 80s and probably before and after that. You know, and then there's people who get baptized, and then they leave the church, and they don't want to have anything to do with the church, but the church still counts them. And they still count them until they're, if they don't know where they're at, because these people disappear off the face of the planet, Oh, they count them until they're 110 before they're knocked off the roll. So you got a guy who decides to take his family and not be part of the church anymore, but they never resign, or the church doesn't recognize their resignation because they didn't do it right. You know, um, say he, he and his wife die in a car accident, and they're like 65. Well, heck, they, they're going to be counted on the rules for another 45 years. That, that's the ridiculousness. So, Actually, 65, 110, I don't know. I'm, my brain isn't working So this right is now something that driving, I came up. Yeah, this is something that came up while I was doing that. Um, what exactly percentage do you want? So that's 1.27. Um, so for. I, okay, um, here's what I want. I don't know how yeah. to explain it to you because I'm ignorant on this stuff. There are 16 million members of the church. Mm -hmm. I want to know how many more women, by percentage, there are in the oh, church. Okay. So, um, with uh, with the LDS church, um, in 2009, they gave a statistic of 127 women for every 100 men who are members yeah. of the LDS church. Yeah, and the thing is, with the 16 million members, they're talking children, too, which they oh, were yeah, not counting right. the children as far as it goes with men and women. Well, I don't yeah, know. I mean, they it could count be, boys and now, girls, but. It, it, may, it may be, I don't know the statistic details, but that's yeah. what we have, so I want to understand. 
you know, it might be that they're counting females and males. Yeah. You know, we don't well, know. According to that, it would because only be, be 27% pilots. higher um, in well, 2009. If you, higher, if, how do you get the number but, of 16 million to divide Yeah, I don't know how they got that. No. There are 16 million members in the church. Mm-hmm. If there were... That would be 8 million men and 8 million women. You just broke up. But it Sorry, is not. I didn't hear you. If the numbers were 50%, 100 to uh-huh. 100, 1 to 1, that would be 8 million men and 8 million women. But the numbers oh, I are see what not. You're so I want to know how many more women, according to their statistics, there are in the church okay. with those numbers. There would numbers. be 12,509. I mean, Sorry, twelve million five hundred ninety-eight thousand four hundred twenty-five point one. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't make sense either. Because then there's only eight thousand right. or eight million number uh, men in the church. Well, no, well, that doesn't make is, sense. The thing is, the oh, ratio that you're oh, using is one twenty-seven to a hundred. Okay, that doesn't make sense though, because if if there were twelve million women in the church. And there's only 16 million members. That means there's only 4, 4 million males. In, in right. That, the ratio that you ratio have to use is, is that 127 to 1. Okay. So the way I did it, just kind of by calculating off of my, you know, my head, so I jumped it up. So 1,000 men would be 1,270 uh, women. Okay, so then you go up to 100,000 men would be 127,000 women or something like that. And then you go up to a million, that would be, I don't know. Like I'm just going up in orders of 10 to try to understand what the numbers are close to. You know what I mean? So even at that yeah. point, at 10 million, um, or 100 mil, or not 100 million, but 10 million, you've got 100 and let's see, 100,000 men, 12 million, 700,000, 200, 200, and, so it'd be 207, 270,000 more women at 1 million. If you, it if you under, be, okay, and that's just 1 million. If it was at one million, yes. If it was at ten million, yeah. So if you go million, up to six, then it would million, be twelve. Yeah, it's two million yeah. seven hundred thousand. Or no, twelve million. It has to be the same ratio. No, it'd be one. It's the different that you're you're putting the decimal in the wrong place. So it would be one million two hundred and seventy thousand more women at ten million members than men. So it would be 1.2 million. And uh, that's at 10 million. And, and it's a 16 million. So I don't know what that number would be. It would be like 1.8 million more women in the church than men who cannot find a husband to get sealed to in the temple because there are not enough men in the church. And that doesn't include your inactives and your less actives. And you go to a 
a singles award in Provo, Utah, you know, like you've got yeah, a ratio a of, of like 100 to 1. Yeah. Go ahead. So also you have to think of all of the other things. So we're talking about if that's members that you don't know if that's including kids or not or who will pass away, die, or not be a member well, by I know. the age because of Because they're so 18. tight-lipped about it. You have to – they're so tight-lipped about it that you have to – try to like use the information that you have to try to make it make it make sense but it doesn't matter the fact of the matter is and there then are also, more women in the church than there are men yeah. by an order of magnitude there are also um women who or men who are gay or lesbian and, yeah, and they don't so they're that not use the numbers they're not in the church or they're yeah well you know they're inactive, or if they're active, there are, are they're few and far between. You know mm-hmm. that's not something that's going to make the numbers bigger or smaller, it, it, like on that would make any like. Um, mm-hmm. But then know. there's also the men or and women who both don't marry in the church; they marry outside of the church, which but happens a point. lot. It has to happen because these women cannot find worthy men who can take them to the temple because there are not enough men in the church to cover all of the women. Well, also, the men in the church, are they even worthy? Like, are we just... That's what I'm saying. Like, even the men in the church, I'm going into depth, but they are schmucks galore. There are schmucks galore. That they're just there for a piece of booty, you know. They're lonely men who want to get up with some woman, and you don't even know how much fornication and crap is going on in these singles wars. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I'm I'm in the depth. I don't know. I never in went to a singles ward. Okay. Luck towards for. I don't know, 12 years or 10 years or, you know, and I was in mid, I would go, so my friends, and Kim's heard about these people, but like as soon as I got married and then I went off the deep end and started doing this, like I was like a pariah to these people. But we used to go to the singles wards and to the singles dances together. (laughs) Okay, and uh, guest call-in number, if you have something to say or you want to say something, whatever. Call in before 8 o'clock, which is in like a minute and a half. Uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827, and we're almost done unless we have a caller. But once it goes off the live stream, which is only two hours, you can't call in and you can't listen anymore until it gets to podcast format. So... My point was, what I was trying to say was, like, my friends I used to go to dances with, like, I don't even know how to tell you people. Like, I had so many friends in the singles community in the LDS church, and that we would, like, we would take up half the dance floor, would just be people that were with me, because people like to be around me. Well, they used to until I went off the deep end and I, I turned into a crazy lunatic, which that's what they think I am now. But, you know, and some of them are still my friends, but most of them are not. 
So, and then the other thing that happens too is when somebody gets married, then all of your friends who are single, uh, they can't be your friends anymore because, because I don't know why, because people are stupid. But, um, and yeah, if you, if you had friends and then you decided that you got married so you don't need friends anymore, then you're, you're shallow, okay? Because that's not what friends are. Like, oh, just, I'll, I'll get off of my, my soapbox for that one. But, you know, these women would come to me and they would talk to me, and they were not interested in me physically or for marriage or anything, but, but they liked to be around me and they trusted me. And they would tell me things about this guy and that guy and what this guy was trying to get him to do and what that guy was trying to get him to do. And it was ridiculous how much fornication and adultery was going on among married members and single members, or single and single and even married and married, that there was a lot of crap going on in the singles wards, um, you know, that people get tied up in because they don't care about the gospel. It's a social club to these people. They don't care. They don't care about Zion's redemption. They were raised in it, and it's a social club to these people. And there are people, and, and I know many, that over and over and over, they would be excommunicated for adultery or fornication, and then they would be allowed back into the church. Don't read the scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants where it says they can be forgiven one time and then they're out. 100% God, goodbye. But they are allowed, to, these men are allowed to be in the church, predators. Oh, and they're so sorry and they'll do whatever they can do. And after a year they get rebaptized and then they go back to their vomit and they, they uh, prey upon these women who trust them and seduce them, these men seduce these women, uh, you know, to get them into bed. And then the woman goes to her bishop because she hates what she's done because she knows it's wrong. And this guy gets hauled into another excommunication. Oh, and he's going to repent, and he's so sorry, and he'll never do it again. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And they don't get excommunicated and blacklisted. They don't. They don't get kicked out and and never. You yeah. know, in the doctrine and covenants, it says that these people are not allowed to be rebaptized. But the LDS Church don't give two shits about the doctrine and covenants. They care more about their wealth and their power and their popularity than they care about Zion's redemption. And I'm calling it out. So, sorry if you're offended by my swearing. I don't care, actually. I'm not sorry. Because that's another one of these man-made laws that, uh, that Gentiles have hedged around the church like the Jews hedge around the law and add all these crappy, stupid traditions to the gospel that don't have anything to do with anything. Anyway, so um, I guess I'm done ranting. Did you have uh, 
anything to yell at me about what I said? <laughs> uh, you can yell, yell at me you. if you feel like I'm wrong. You can yell at me if you if you feel no, I'm wrong, no. but you wouldn't really know because no. I'm the one that experienced no, the single force that. and you didn't. So. Hi, Arius. <laughs> he Why is looking at reading? his monster truck book and he needed somebody to read it to him. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yes. You Look know what's okay. really fun about Arius for the listening audience? He is our baby. He's probably our last. Why and he me? will be <laughs> we, he will be free in June. And he is still wearing 18-month clothes. Is he wearing 18-month clothes still? Or did he, he, did he go up? He's 18. He He's is. an 18. He's our baby, and we love him. And we're so thankful because we love babies, and we wish we could have more. But um, we have five, and we love our kids, even though they're kids and they're ridiculous. Especially the teenagers, they're all ridiculous, so, but we love them anyway. Eliza so took anyways, your safety goggles and put them over her glasses so she could see in the snowstorms I, today. I, I have a pair of goggles that I got for uh, cutting a hole in the ceiling in the Chirac. And, uh, yeah, Eliza, our eight-year-old decided that she was going to use them for her own purposes. Because when you have kids, if you don't lock it up, they will get into it. Doesn't matter if they're 16 or 2, they will get into it. Even if you tell them over and over again, don't touch, they will get into it. If they want to play with it and they want to know what it is, and they're curious and they're little monsters, we love them anyway. And they're playing with balloons now. Okay. All right. Well, um, is Emmett uh, monitoring the studio? Yes, he is. Okay. On uh, the computer, he even. Can tell me. Wow. He 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 can be taught. <laughs> sort of. Okay, Kim. Go ahead and mute yourself because Arius, Arius is ridiculous. Arius is being ridiculous, I know. Damn it. Oh, hold on. Well, 5997. Who's 5997? That would be your son. No, I'm is the it? other guy. I'm 5353. I'm I just unmute Why myself. Why is... His hand is raised. I know. I'm, that's what I'm looking at. I do have a, a Lydia's phone in the vehicle with me because when I had to put the hard hat on, I think so. Yeah, that's her number. Okay. So we don't have anybody in the studio, right? Nope. I must have accidentally pushed one when I was uh, connecting it to the little speaker that's in the truck with me. Um, and that's how I was monitoring the radio show when you, when I was talking to you in the screening room, Kim. I just used her phone to, uh, to call in, to put it on the speaker that I have. And, uh, and then I was talking to you in the screening room off air earlier. 
about, you know, reading and where you were supposed to be at and all that stuff. So anyway, all right, well, let's uh there's nobody in the chat room either, Emmett? Nope. I just refreshed it. Okay, I have one thing to say before I get done. I've gone 100 miles today in the truck, and my odometer, because I'm ridiculous with numbers, is 588,855, which means later on today it's going to be 588,885, which is a chiasm or something. I don't even know what you call it. And then it's going to be eights across the board except for the five, and we'll forgive the five for that. But I love numbers, even though I'm ignorant about them. It's, it's going to be like a palindrome, but with numbers. Yeah, uh, sure. Okay, anyway, um, go ahead and cue the music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Okay, take care. God bless, and goodbye. Hammett, yep, cue the music. Thank you for everything.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.